Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is New Books in Psychology, and I'm your host, Eugenio Duarte, in New York. Today, we're speaking to Andrew Skull about his new book, Madness and Civilization, A Cultural History of Insanity, published by Princeton University Press in 2015. Andrew Skull is Distinguished Professor of Sociology and Science Studies at the University of California, San Diego. His prior books include Masters of Bedlam, The Transformation of the Mad... Doctoring Trade, published in 2016, Madhouses, Mad Doctors, and Mad Men, The Social History of Psychiatry in the Victorian Area, published in 2015, and The Insanity of Place slash The Place of Insanity, Essays on the History of Psychiatry in 2015. And there are many more books I could mention, but I want to get to talking to him. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you, Arnie. It's really nice to have the chance to chat. Same here. So, you know, I see that you've written quite a bit about the history of psychiatry and madness. Can you tell me about your interest in this topic? Yes, of course. Um, it is indeed a very longstanding one, uh, beginning back when I was a graduate student at Princeton in the early 1970s, which I'm afraid dates me, uh, when I began work on lunacy reform in Victorian England uh, and wrote a book called Museums of Madness, which looked at on the one hand, the rise of psychiatry as a new profession claiming expertise in the handling of madness. And secondarily, uh, but as importantly, uh, looked at the rise of the asylum as the primary response to serious forms of mental illness. So I began in the 19th century and with England and subsequent to that, I've ranged very widely over the course of my career uh, much of the time still working on the history of madness and the history of psychiatry. And I'm happy to explain the difference between those, if you like. But um, moving forward into the 20th century, uh, talking about deinstitutionalization, the, de- the demise of the asylum, talking also about um, experimentation on mental patients in the early 20th century, then moving back into the 18th century, Uh, and doing some work there, doing some more 19th century material. And then uh, as my career proceeded, widening my focus, so I wrote a book on on hysteria, uh, looking at that disease, if disease it be, from um, very ancient times all the way up to the present. Uh, And finally, as as you say, um, last year I, I wrote, and, and published this very long book on the on the cultural history of madness from um, ancient times, from the the Hebrew Bible and ancient Greece and even ancient China, all the way through to uh, the present, and looking at that in a very broad perspective. So, trying to see uh, madness as it refracted through culture and could be viewed in art and in music, uh, in in religious uh, contexts, in medical contexts, very, as I say, a very wide-ranging discussion of of a topic I've been working on for more than four decades now. And I certainly want to get into the book um, because there is... There are a lot of interesting things to talk about it, but even before we do, you're, you're a sociologist, correct? I, yes, in a peculiar kind of sense, I am. Um, I, I trained uh, when I was uh, at Oxford in a very broad background in, the, in social sciences and philosophy, a degree called politics, philosophy, and economics. And then at Princeton, I worked both with historians and with sociologists, but my degree was in sociology. Um, but I've always been a very historically oriented sociologist and somebody who spent an enormous amount of time in the archives because uh, I have an enormous respect for the craft of being a historian. And I, 
I think if you if you don't have direct contact with primary sources, um, then your work suffers. Obviously, when one's writing over a very very long time period, you can't pretend to master all the different documentary sources you might turn to. But I think that discipline of working with original source material and and trying to uh, uncover the past as best one can is is quite vital. And in that sense, I'm both a historian and a sociologist, although I make my living in a sociology department. I see. I mean, your, your respect for history really comes through in the book because for anybody for anybody who likes history uh on its own they would really enjoy this book because it's it it really takes you through the history of the world but what i was wondering before getting into it is how it is that you became interested even as a graduate student how does it you became interested in this particular part of history the the history of something like madness Yes, that's um, an interesting topic. I must say, when I started out, I didn't intend to devote a whole career to this arena. Uh, it was a topic that I came upon while I was at Princeton, and I think what initially motivated me to be interested in the subject uh, was uh, two sets of things. First of all, reading a couple of very important books that came out about that time, um, one of which was the English translation in abbreviated form of Michel Foucault's book, Folies de Raison, uh, which was translated in, in the mid-60s as Madness and Civilization. Mm. Uh, Foucault was a much less well-known figure in Anglo-American circles then than obviously he became in later years. But that book was certainly something that piqued my interest, as did a book by David Rothman called The Discovery of the Asylum, which appeared in 1971. And so reading those books uh, by chance in a, a seminar I was taking piqued my interest. I became aware that there was very little historiography, very little study of the history of madness in ways I thought were, were um, sufficiently rigorous for England in that period. And I, as may be residually apparent, grew up in England um, and was attracted to the opportunity to work on English materials um, in the 19th century and kind of bring them into some kind of tension with the interpretations that Foucault and Rothman had uh, offered. And you'll note my latest book is called Madness in Civilization. Foucault's in English was called Madness and Civilization. Uh, and, and Foucault tended to uh, oppose madness and civilization, see them one as sort of outside the other. And one of my central arguments is that that's a mistake, that uh, madness is very much in and part of our, our existence and, and very much part of the human condition uh, all through history. So, the, uh, you know, I think my initial foray was dictated by that, by my um, background in English history that dated back uh, to my education in England and the opportunity this field seemed to present to uh, do some interesting initial work. And then once I'd launched upon it, um, I found it led to a whole series of puzzles and problems that basically have preoccupied most of my time since then. Uh, I have written on some other topics, on, on social theory, on the sociology of law, but the great bulk of my work has indeed been on, on the history of psychiatry and the history of madness. And since you've written so much about it, what what new ground are you hoping to cover with, with this book, Madness and Civilization? Well, there hadn't been a global history of madness um, written in, oh, uh, 60, 70, 80 years. And the uh, attempts to provide a sort of synthetic view of the subject were very dated. They, they were written by people with strong biases, um, mostly, in fact, if you look at, say, uh, Gregory Zilborg's book, uh, a book that saw everything as sort of either a precursor of Freud and an enlightened view of madness or just so much barbaric biological nonsense. Um, there'd, there'd been one book, one exception to that 
um, written in the late 90s by Edward Shorter, a Canadian historian, uh, which was called A History of Psychiatry. Uh, and that book was marred for me by um, sort of turning Zilborg upside down, arguing that everything that didn't um, presage modern biological psychiatry was a, a, a dreadful mistake and that um, modern psychiatry had solved most of the problems of mental illness. And I didn't believe either of those things. Moreover, Shorter's book really covered only a period between the 18th and the 20th century. Um, I had designs on something much more wide-ranging. Uh, I've always been very interested in art, in drama, in uh, novels, in, in um, music, and, and uh, a whole range of things. And in all those areas... Uh, I had encountered attempts to represent madness or art produced in, in some cases by people who'd been labeled as mad. And so I was really intrigued by the possibility of constructing uh, an interpretation of madness that didn't try to provide a linear history or proclaim some march of progress, but at the same time wasn't um, Luddite, didn't, didn't pretend that there'd be no advances in our understanding and our treatment of, of mm. the mental illness. Um, and I'd always thought Foucault's title was a misnomer, and in fact, it wasn't his title at all. Um, his original title uh, spoke of folie des raisons, madness and unreason, a history of, of madness in the classical age. Uh, and it really was about a period from the late 17th century through the early 19th century, and it concentrated only on European and particularly French developments, whereas I was interested in a much more global perspective, one that really I'd been thinking about and, and working on for a very, very long time. I wouldn't have dared to attempt this book. Some may argue that it's... it's um, uh, overly ambitious even now, but I certainly wouldn't have done it before having a very broad acquaintance with the field over a very long time. And before we go any further, can you talk about madness and what you mean by it? Because you, your opening chapter really um, explains why you chose that word. Can, can you talk yes. about that? I think that's very important. Um, I neither call the book a history of psychiatry nor a history of mental illness. And there's good reason for that. Um, I think madness um, is a very amorphous and, and wide-ranging and culturally influenced condition, but one uh, that is uh, present in all the, all the civilized societies I'm aware of. Um, and it, it, as a label, it encompasses a very broad array of things from um, very serious disturbances of cognition and emotion, even the loss, really, of most of our mental faculties in the form of um, uh, people who, who become demented, uh, but also takes much milder forms, which are often quite controversial. That's true, for example, of conditions like hysteria, uh, which are, occupy a very ambiguous status for much of their history. So uh, the reason I use the term madness is that that's what uh, was widely used, uh, that term and its cognates, for uh, a couple of millennia at least. Uh, and it was really only at some point in the 19th century that even physicians who, special, who were beginning to specialize in the treatment of mental illness began to distance themselves from terms like madness, insanity, and lunacy. Uh, so for much of human history, that's what the term was uh, that was in common use at all levels of society. I think it's a term now um, that conjures up images of um, stigma and that, too, was a conscious choice on my part because I think that's one of the ongoing almost cultural universals about madness that, unfortunately, super added to whatever suffering the conditions themselves bring, and they are many, 
both for the sufferer and those around him or her. Uh, but superimposed on top of that uh, are the reactions of society, which are not always, but very often highly stigmatizing. And so by bringing that to the fore and problematizing this kind of behavioral and uh, cognitive and emotional um, distance from the common sense world we all assume we share, I wanted to foreground that. And in the same way, psychiatry is a term uh, which really only entered, it was invented in Germany in the early 19th century, and it didn't become the common term for specialists in mental medicine until the very late 19th century in the Anglo-American world. Before that, uh, those who, medical men who, and they were almost all men, who dabbled in the treatment of madness were called mad doctors, called themselves mad doctors. And when they didn't like the ambiguity in that term, the sense that they might be as mad as their patients, uh, they adopted terms like alienist from the French or sometimes medical superintendent because the origins of psychiatry in the 19th century were very much bound up with the shift in that period to large institutions as the primary response to major forms of mental disorder. So do you think that what we now refer to as mental illness in, term, in terms of the referent of the, of the term is the same thing as what people back then ref, refer to with the word madness or did madness actually mean refer to something different itself? Well, yeah, I, I think if I were trying to answer that question, what I'd say in the first instance is that there's a core of um, kinds of behavior and cognition and emotional tone which are so at variance with the universe the rest of us assume we more or less share that they'd be recognized and have been recognized in almost any society that I'm aware of. I tend for shorthand to refer to those extreme kinds of madness as bedlam madness after the famous English institution founded in the 13th century. But um, I would... Uh, say that beyond that, there's a number of conditions, there's a sort of range of uh, conditions that uh, are rather more ambiguous. And those meanings are very much up for grabs and in different cultures can be regarded in, in very different kinds of ways. Uh, I open the book, for example, with talking about madness in ancient Palestine. And if um, if you read the the books of the Hebrew Bible, you see, or what Christians call the, the Old Testament, you'll see examples of prophets behaving in ways that, uh, under other circumstances, clearly could have been regarded as madness. And indeed, sometimes in the course of the careers of people that came to be recognized as prophets, they were regarded as mad um, before they came to be seen as, as divinely inspired. So yeah, cultures look at this in very different ways. Um, before the advent of modern psychiatry, which has its own techniques and um, claims about the boundaries of around mental illness, uh, it was up to competent members of a given culture to decide where those boundaries lay. And that varied at different times, as did the characteristic uh, explanations that people um, looked to when they sought to explain why it was that people, people behaved in ways so at variance with common sense, so at variance with what they presumed was the shared experience of, of all of us. Uh, one of the parts of your book that I found most interesting was um – the, the part where you cover the, the long-standing relationship between madness and the divine, going all the way to, back to God's punishing Saul for disobeying him and then casting upon him an evil spirit that thereafter tormented him. Can you speak to the relationship between madness slash mental illness and the divine and when you think that that relationship um, gave way to some other way of conceptualizing madness? Yeah, I, I 
think, obviously, within a Jewish and a Christian context, uh, we can we can see those relationships uh, from very early on, as you just mentioned, with the, the madness of Saul, the first king uh, of of the Jews, um, but extending all the way down well past the Middle Ages into the 18th century and in, in many ways beyond. And it would be wrong to assume that medical inter- – uh, I'm sorry, religious interpretations of madness have entirely disappeared in the modern world, that we've become so secular that those accounts of uh, mental disturbance don't in- continue to enjoy currency in some segments of our society. Uh, but I think – uh, it's fair to say that um, when um, ancient Greek and Roman medicine begin to re-enter Europe in the Middle Ages from the Islamic world, which is largely responsible for um, sustaining those uh, ancient medical ideas, when that begins to happen in the, in the Middle Ages, there is a period lasting several centuries where um, both religious and medical or more what purport at least to be more naturalistic accounts of mental illness exist alongside one another, sometimes in tension, sometimes not, uh, as medicine becomes more uh, self-conscious and becomes more self-confident, there erupts some um, tensions between uh, divinely uh, oriented uh, interpretations of madness and more secular, more more um, medical accounts of what's going on. Uh, generally, during that period, and I'm speaking here 13th, 14th, 15th, even 16th century, we can see um, uh, the, the physicians conceding that some cases of madness are indeed cases of possession or of divine punishment um, or of witchcraft, uh, but other cases they regard as strictly their own province as as the result of the same constellation of both bodily and psychological things operating somehow in tandem to throw people out out of the kilter. And at the same time, there's a growing um, willingness on the part of theologians to concede that while certain kinds of madness are indeed divinely or diabolically inspired, other forms of madness may indeed um, reside in the in the medical realm. And what we see in the centuries after that um, is that the physicians gradually, as part of the more, a more general secularization of the world uh, and a growing prominence of, of medical ideas, their particular interpretations of madness more and more become the ones that at least are the most culturally legitimate. I don't mean they're the only ones, but they become more and more dominant so that by the 19th century, I think it's quite clear that among the educated classes, um, the more religiously inclined interpretations of madness have tended to drop away and be replaced by what purports to be a scientific medical account of what are now called uh, mental illnesses. Is there a particular case from history, a, a clinical case, that you could talk about which illustrates this, either the tension between medical and religious explanations or even maybe the, the integration between those two ways of conceptualizing madness? Um, yes, there, there's an interesting case, I think, that occurs um, around 1600 in, in London, um, and it involves a young girl, um, probably an early adolescence, who is sent by her mother to deliver a message to an old crone. The young girl's name is Mary Glover. And she goes into this old woman's house to deliver the message. And she's somehow offended this this woman's daughter. And the old crone responds by uh, attacking her verbally, 
threatening her and saying she hopes she dies and that she's uh, that God punishes her for her offense against the daughter and, and drives her out of her wits. And indeed, the young girl returns home and has fits and goes blind and becomes insensitive to being poked with needles. All the classic symptoms of what we might think of um, perhaps today as a conversion disorder, or if we lived 100 years ago, a sign of hysteria. And uh, the old woman's put on trial as a witch. Uh, and um, at the trial, uh, the judge clearly favors that supernatural account that she's been possessed and that the old woman has, has uh, acted as a witch and has driven her out of her wits. Uh, it's the, the, in, uh, a physician named Edward Jordan is put on the stand and he testifies, no, this is really a case of suffocation of the mother, another term for hysteria, and that a naturalistic account of um, the young girl's um, illness is to be called for. Uh, the judge ended, ends up rejecting that medical testimony and uh, convicting the old woman of being a witch. And she's rather lucky that that's an interregnum where the British law doesn't prescribe being burned at the stake. Um, it, the, the case is really complicated because it turns out that part of what's going on is actually a, a, a theological confrontation between the mainstream Church of England and the Puritans. This young girl, it comes from a Puritan family, and it's actually one of the Church of England bishops who's asked the Edward Jordan to provide this testimony to refute the Puritan interpretation of this young girl's illness. So uh, it, it's a really good illustration of the way in which religious and medical accounts are all muddled up together still in the in the 17th century and we could see cases of this in the 18th century there's a uh, a, a priest in in the austrian empire named gasser for example who's resorting to exorcism and people come from all over the german countries in europe to have the demons cast out of them um so we can see that um, in what purports to be, as often called by historians, the age of reason, the persistence among many classes of people of religiously based interpretations and, and indeed treatments of, of madness. You know, I, I want to shift to a different idea that also gets covered in the book that I think um, is, is really important, and it's the difference between Eastern and Western conceptualizations of madness. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, uh, I can. Uh, the you know one of the things in in uh, uh, I mean when one speaks of um, India or China, uh, obviously these are civilizations with a very long and complex history. Uh, India, in particular, is a, a, a country where. Um, the indigenous medical ideas are influenced by ideas coming through Persia, which are heavily Hellenistic. So there's a blending, really, of some of the ideas in the West into the into those of the East. Uh, Chinese medicine um, doesn't really distinguish between uh, mental and physical illness. Everything is seen as a kind of global whole. Um, and the same kinds of things that can provoke what are unambiguously physical illnesses are the same sorts of things that can also provoke mental illnesses. Physical illness can be provoked by emotional turmoil, by violating social norms, by insulting ancestors, by uh, changes in the wind, uh, by a whole array of things. Uh, and there isn't that clear... Uh, distinction between the mental and the physical, uh, just as some of the time that would have been true in in the West, um, but I think that um, persists rather rather longer in in Chinese circles. So um, there's clearly some independence, and then um, very late on in the case of China, as Western influence begins to penetrate and China becomes a sort of semi semi colonial. Uh, state there's there's some interesting tensions between uh, the older Chinese ideas that have come down over the centuries 
and the incursion of more modern Western versions of madness. And uh, one of my graduate students has written extensively on this, and we'll, we'll have a book coming out on it, I think, in another year or two that will address precisely those issues. What exactly is the, or, or was the tension between the arriving Western ideas and the Chinese ideas? Well, for one thing, um, the Western ideas, by the time they arrived, and we're talking very late, 19th, early 20th century, were heavily biological. They were heavily rested on the idea of specialized institutions. Um, they had a heavy um, hereditarian component, a sense that mental illness was rooted in defective biology. And um, they tended to adopt um, both uh, an account of where madness came from that was biological, and forms of treatment themselves were somewhat alien to what the Chinese uh, themselves believed in. And so there's an interesting period where um, through the endeavors, for example, of the Rockefeller Foundation, who were very active in trying to bring Western medicine into China and uh, are very skeptical of the value of, of of Chinese medicine is a period where they're bringing uh, and setting up a, a modern asylum in Beijing, uh, and it's not at all clear how that fits in with the beliefs of Chinese patients, and more importantly, Chinese uh, families, as they confront the problem of mental illness. But the asylum becomes a useful place for families who are coping with the depredations of madness. And so they may make use of it, even if they're not entirely comfortable with the, the Western ideas about madness that the, the heads of those asylums are trying to promulgate. Can we talk some about asylums? Because I think that they occupy a prominent place in the history of madness. Um, how did they start? And also, how, how did they end? Yeah, it's very, very, very interesting um, subject. Uh, on the one hand, uh, you know, as is usually the case in history, it's uh, one can trace the idea of a handful of institutions that made some provision for the mad all the way back, particularly in uh, Arab civilization, back even as far as the 8th and the 9th century. And the Arabs, uh, when they conquered Spain, set up some hospitals which set aside cells for uh, the mentally deranged. Uh, in the West, uh, there were a handful of borrowings of those ideas in some sense. Um, Bethlehem Hospital, which became corrupted to the word bedlam, uh, was was founded um, in the uh, I believe twelve about twelve ninety eight uh, as one of a series of monastic hospitals, which really were more places where pilgrims, people down on their luck, the old, the crippled, and the blind, uh, people who are chronically ill, might find themselves. They weren't specifically medical; they derived more from the common root with their idea of hospitality. So the monks took in these these people. Um, one or two of these hospitals, like Bedlam, eventually came to specialize in mental illness. So there's, there's that history. Uh, by the time England, for example, becomes a more prosperous commercial society in the late 17th into the 18th century, uh, that all kinds of new services begin to emerge into the marketplace. And one of those services is taking the mad off the hands of families. And so there emerge a series of profit-making madhouses alongside some older charitable asylums, which begin to take a small fraction of the mad. Most of the mad are still the family's responsibility primarily and are not institutionalized. They're left at large. Uh, the real age of the asylum, um, the, the great confinement, as Foucault would have put it, which Foucault dated to the second half of the 17th century, that's really wrong historically, even in France. It's the 19th century that's the great age of the asylum. It's born in a 
period of where of utopian optimism about what these new institutions can accomplish the idea that human nature is malleable and can be changed for the better uh, which extends beyond the mad but the mad are an important kind of test case for this so asylums are built along the lines of particular kind of moral architecture. So even the space within which the mad are confined contributes greatly to the attempt to reclaim them and bring them back to the land of the same. Uh, and those institutions start quite small, uh, claim to achieve very positive results. The most famous in the Anglo-American world is probably the York Retreat, a Quaker foundation that opened in 1796 in the north of England. Uh, but uh, that then spawns a state-sponsored asylum-building program that we can, we can see in Germany, in France, in Austria, in Italy, uh, in England, uh, in Scotland, in North America. And um, from the second half of the 19th century onwards, the general view is that the single best place for a lunatic is in one of these modern asylums. And the initial thought is they will be engines of curative medicine. Uh, the actual reality is that they never live up to the hype and they quickly become overwhelmed with hordes of chronic patients uh, their identity morphs from being curative institutions in the 1840s and 50s to being kind of um, mausoleums of the mad, places, sort of cemeteries for people who are still breathing but aren't expected really to recover. Now, in a way, that's misleading because even at the depths of pessimism in the last third of the 19th century, probably 25 or 30 percent of the people who come into the asylum leave within uh, the first year or so. But the overwhelming bulk of the patient population consists of chronic long-stay patients, and that um, generates a sense that mental illness is a hopeless condition and and. The idea among psychiatrists that it derives from defective heredity. Um, in the 20th century, uh, in outside the democratic world, um, where compulsory sterilization had been introduced in some places, particularly California, where I happen to reside, um, in Nazi Germany, by contrast, that licensed first compulsory sterilization of the mentally ill and then their extermination. They were, the mentally ill were the first victims of Hitler's final solution. It was there that gas chambers disguised as uh, showers were introduced, and that technology they was then moved east to the death camps for Jews and other undesirables. Uh, the final solution. Now, the demise of the asylum came after World War II uh, in Britain and the United States. It dates pretty clearly from the mid-1950s. There's, for the first time since the asylum age began, uh, a fall in the numbers of patients in mental hospitals in those countries uh, beginning in 1954 and 55. Um, it's initially quite small, but in the 1960s, it accelerates and it accelerates again in the 1970s. Um, and then um, it spreads into France, into Italy, into Germany and around the world, really. Uh, and we move into an era that's often called the era of deinstitutionalization or a rather barbarous word, decarceration, where mental patients are moved out of the traditional mental hospital. And the claim is that this is going to be a grand reform and they're going to enjoy the benefits of community care, which is a kind of Orwellian doublespeak because there is no community and by and large there is no care. So the mentally ill, the very seriously mentally ill, beginning in the middle of the 20th century, increasingly abandoned to their fate. Uh, and so, for example, in my state, California now, if you ask, where's the largest single place in which the mentally ill are to be found and treated? It's the Los Angeles County Jail. The wow. mentally ill have moved, moved back to the prisons and into the gutters and into the ghettos um, and um, sidewalk psychotics are 
a common feature of the urban landscape now. Well, in, in your book, I think you explain that part of the uh, reason for deinstitutionalization was that it was happening in tandem with the advent of psychotropic medications. Is that correct? Uh, those, do th- those two things do mm-hmm. coincide to some degree. Um, they do coincide rather precisely for Britain and the United States in that Thorazine, the fir- or Logactyl as it was called in Europe, the first of the so-called antipsychotics is introduced in 1954, very conveniently just as asylum populations begin to turn down. In fact, the relationship between drugs and deinstitutionalization is a lot more complex and a lot less clear-cut than many psychiatrists would, would have us believe. And I think that a large part of the shift away from the institution was in fact a deliberate shift in social policy and to some degree the accidental result of other kinds of social policies that had emerged in the post-war era and that made the asylum seem an increasingly unattractive place for governments who were forced to bear the cost of what were becoming ever more expensive institutions Mm -hmm. to run and operate. So I think fiscal concerns um, and deliberate acts of social policy um, were every bit as important, perhaps more important than the drugs. Though certainly in terms of reconciling psychiatrists to the idea that patients could be managed in the community, the advent of modern drug treatments was, was clearly important and uh, I don't mean to imply that the drugs had had no effect at all. Mm-hmm. You know, as as a trained psychoanalyst, I have to ask you this question, and that is, what role did Freud and the psychoanalytic movement in general uh, play in the history of madness and of how we think about mental illness? Mm-hmm. Well, um, I think for a period, a very important role, particularly if we focus on the United States, which is rather ironic given Freud's own rather strident anti-Americanism. As you all well know, uh, Freud himself visited America once and only once in 1909 uh, when he came to Clark University to give a series of lectures. Um, And that really established a small beachhead for psychoanalysis. And really before World War II, uh, in uh, the United States, psychoanalysis was a very, very small, although increasingly culturally significant phenomenon. Uh, it was really World War II and its aftermath that led to psychoanalysis for a period becoming the dominant strand in American psychiatry. When I say the dominant strand, I mean by that, that if you looked in the 50s and 60s, at the major departments of psychiatry where American psychiatrists were trained, those were all headed with very, very few exceptions by either psychoanalysts or people who were sympathetic to psychoanalysis. The absolute reverse of what you would find today where hardly a single department would have a head of somebody who was psychoanalytically inclined. Um, the very best recruits into psychiatry, it, psychiatry in those years tended to gravitate to psychoanalytic practice and above and beyond their training within the universities, they affiliated themselves, if they could, with psychoanalytic institutions, underwent a training analysis and sought to practice on, a, on an office-based uh, um, form of practice um, psychoanalytic therapy. Uh, And in the 40s, 50s, 60s, if you looked at American culture, if you look at the movies, for example, that great modern art form, if art form it be, they were saturated with ideas about uh, uh, the meanings of madness being critical both to its genesis and to its effective treatment and resolution. And the whole slew of films one, one could look at from Hitchcock's Spellbound, for example, down to Robert Redwood's, Redford's Ordinary People, where these themes are, are very, very visible indeed. Uh, also true that it enters um, popular fiction, popular nonfiction. It becomes a prominent theme in surreal art, it's adopted by the advertising industry, uh, it becomes part of child-rearing via Benjamin Spock's um, 
bringing up your baby. So um, there's a period in the middle of the 20th century where everybody would assume that the idea that madness is closely associated with meaning, both in terms of its ideology, its origins, and in terms of its effective treatment, we would have expected that to be the case. Then beginning in the 1980s, very abruptly, psychoanalysis goes into retreat. Uh, It's overcome by an abrupt shift back towards biology among the mainstream of psychiatry. The usurpation of its position at the head of training programs by neuroscientists uh, and people interested in biological accounts of psychiatry. And it really gets marginalized in in many, many ways. Um, And I think there's some loss attached to that, even though I'm not by any means a, a convinced Freudian but I'm somebody who thinks that um, any um, um, monocausal account of mental illness is doomed to be a failure, that this is a far more complex phenomenon that has to encompass a whole range of causes uh, if we're going, going to comprehend it. And we're very far from doing that, of course. And, and one of the things that I find myself talking a lot about with my colleagues and even with students that I teach um, in in a master's program in counseling, uh, we talk a lot about the prominence of managed care in the treatment of mental illness and psychiatry. And I'm wondering what you think about where we are right now in terms of how we think about and treat mental illness and also where you think where do you think we're going and where do you think we should go or, or how, what should we, what should we be doing differently? If anything? Mm, boy, that's a very complicated series of questions to respond to, but let me, let me try and respond to them. Um, clearly, uh, managed care has, um, imposed some very important changes on medical practice generally, just in psychiatry. Uh, I think, uh, when one looks at what psychiatrists get up to today, uh, you don't need to look to New Yorker cartoons, which still tend to picture a psychiatrist and a patient in a couch. Uh, what most psychiatrists do now is dispense pills. And uh, psychotherapy, partly because managed care won't pay for it on, a, on an adequate level, uh, is, is very mo- much marginalized. In fact, it's mostly been devolved upon psychiatric social workers and clinical psychologists. Um, and it, one of the reasons I think that psychoanalysis has lost out uh, is because it's such a long and costly process and its um, efficacy is, is unclear, where by contrast, after World War II, one of the things we saw emerging was a discipline called clinical psychology, which embraced things like cognitive behavioral therapy, which was supposedly validated in the laboratory and were directed at systematically attacking the symptomatology that patients were experiencing. For analysts, as you don't need to be told, um, treating simply the symptoms is like playing a game of whack-a-mole. You squash that symptom and something else will pop up because you haven't dealt with the what psych- psychoanalysts regard as the underlying issues. But um, insurers are quite keen on short-term treatments that purport to make um, troublesome symptoms disappear, and in some cases do make troublesome symptoms disappear. And so I think the realm of psychotherapy has increasingly devolved on um, these often rather feminized professions that charge less than people with an MD and provide very often these more short-term psychotherapies rather than the the, the more elaborate versions that um, psychoanalytically oriented people would prefer, would argue, were um, superior. And and what do you think about what some people are calling the next wave in um, psychology, which is the advent or the prominence, um, the rising prominence of neuroscience? The increasing presence of neuroscience in the realm of psychiatry is an interesting one. I think one of the important uh, markers of that was when 
George H.W. Bush, the first of the Bush clan to occupy the presidency, proclaimed in 1991 that this was going to be the decade of the brain. And a lot of money was going to be put behind um, neuroscience as the key to understanding mental illness. And clearly that's persisted um, in the halls of the National Institute of Mental Health, uh, NIMH, all the way down to the present. Um, There's been a lot of money plowed into that. um, And uh, clearly uh, some people believe that's going to be the royal road forward. I would have to say that although we've learned more about the brain uh, as a result of those efforts, its clinical usefulness has been extremely limited to date. And we remain... Um, essentially um, ignorant about the etiology of the major forms of mental illness, even in the present. There's not been the payoff either in terms of basic understanding of mental illness or of therapeutic interventions that clearly people had hoped for. Uh, I think at the moment the federal government's doubling down Although who knows in the era of Trump what's going to happen, but at least at the moment it seems to be doubling down on that approach. Uh, I think like any other attempt to grapple with madness, something that ignores the psychological and the social and focuses only on the biological is doomed to be at best a a partial success. I mean, I don't pretend to be any better prophet of the future than uh, the next person. Um, But my own sense of things is that that, um, it's a mistake to put all your eggs in one basket like that. Um, And, uh, you know, certainly the last two or three decades of neuroscientific research, the results in terms of understanding and practical improvements in treatment have been meager. Well, Andrew, this has been a very enlightening conversation. There's so much more that I wish I could ask you about, but I'm afraid we're about out of time. Before we go, though, can you tell us what you're working on these days? Certainly, yes. Um, I'm working on what's quite a large um, topic, but compared to my last book, a much more manageable one. I'm trying to look at um, American psychiatry as a profession from about 1900 to the present, really the long 20th century, one might say. Uh, if I could borrow a chapter title from my fellow psychiatric historian, Ned Shorter, I would call this From Freud to Prozac, huh. the kind of evolution of thinking about mental illness and approaches to mental illness and the profession of psychiatry, particularly in an American context over, over that um, hundred and 20 years or so. Wow, that sounds like an exciting project. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us today. And I hope that you'll let us know when the next book comes out and maybe come by the show again. I'd love to do that, Eugenio. And thank you ever so much for the interview. It's been a great pleasure to talk with you. It's in our, ple- our pleasure, too. Thank you. Take care. That was my interview with Andrew Skull, author of the new book, Madness and Civilization, A Cultural History of Insanity. This is Eugenio Duarte for New Books in Psychology. Don't forget to tell me what you think by going to my website, www.eugenioduartephd.com, and clicking on the blog and podcast tab to find this episode. Have a great week.